Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast, where we promote, educate, inspire, and entertain creators of all things related to fantasy and science fiction. Hi, this is Carson with Troy, and I have with me um, game designer and publisher Carl Rossi. Carl, thank you so much for getting on with me. Uh, he wrote uh, a world guide called Terra that's a ste- that's set in a steampunk world um, in the Pathfinder setting, or the Pathfinder rule set. Um, Carl, go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about yourself and, and about Terra. I've been playing tabletop role-playing games for a very long time. Uh, I have a lot of fun when new people come in to games that I'm running because I can always tell them, almost always tell them, that I've been gaming longer than they've been alive. Uh, I started when I was seven, so that's uh, 48 years ago that I've been gaming. I'm 46, sorry, (laughs) bad math. and it's been off and on, but fairly continuous. I've played all kinds of different systems. And Tara started with my son, my oldest son was playing a game by Sierra. It was an older game when he played it even, and it's a very old game. It was called uh, Arcanium. And it was based in a steampunk world that influenced my son quite a bit. And he decided to create his own campaign world called the city of dusk that led to um, me deciding, well, Hey, this is something that people seem to like. Maybe we can put together our own role-playing game world. That's steampunk at the time. There really wasn't anything. Unfortunately, I'm kind of slow, so there's plenty out there now. But Terra has a few unique concepts about it that I'm pretty proud of. So what what was the spark to create it? You said you you know your your son, but you have to kind of create you know a whole world. What were some of the unique things that kind of sparked to have you create this? William Gibson and I can't remember his co-author's name, but William Gibson did a book called The Difference Engine. A lot of authors will claim to have invented steampunk, but really the earliest one I found is that book by William Gibson, who is also the one who wrote the Neuromancer, which is considered the start of steampunk. Uh, Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk. And that really, for some reason, that book really resonated with me. Uh, It's very different in that one of the main characters in the book is a box of punch cards. Oh, really? It's as soon as I got to the end of the book and I was like, this makes no sense. And another friend told me, just look at it as if this was a character. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) now I get it. Now I understand. So he used a really unique concept in there. I thought that was kind of neat too. I also started reading the Girl Genius comic by Kill and Kaja Folio. And that had a big impact on the game in a way I didn't expect. Uh, we, of course, wanted a mad scientist class to go with, uh, with the game. And we planned on calling it, with, you know, huge creativity on my part, a mad scientist. <laughs> but I figured, you know, hey, I'll just email... Uh, I'll just email the authors and see if we can call it a spark. And 
nothing happened. We were actually getting close to being finished. And I get this email from Phil Fo uh, Folio saying, hey, this is a cool idea. <laughs> and so we ended up with, we ended up getting the rights to, to use Spark in our campaign world, which we're very thrilled with. I, um, I guess technically I should be saying, hey, visit girlgeniusonline.com because everything we do, part of the deal is I put it, throw in a little ad for them. So all our novels and in the books and in the character reference guide that we've done, there's an ad for them. It's, it's a fun comic and we're, we're just very honored to be able to use that as part of our, as part of our game system. We also added the, the charlatan, which was something that I started with first edition D&D &D, and they had the illusionist class and I love the illusionist class. And then second edition killed it. And third edition didn't help either the 3.5 or four or, and so, so just kind of a tribute to that first edition illusionist, the, the con man, the charlatan is a, basically an illusionist. He's a master of illusion. So we added, those are the two main classes that we added. And we've, we've worked from there and developed a world that I like to think of as, as unique in its own way, because it mixes a little bit of magic and, and science. You, know, you get some of the things you really like, but one, one of the roles we put on ourselves early on was steampunk is more than just gears and goggles. There's a, a song by Sir Reginald out on YouTube. Uh, glue some, what is it? Glue some gears on it and call it steampunk. <laughs> and that, that, that did a bit to influence me too, to, to keep me more online with, okay, steampunk is a Victorian era society that's been thrust into the computer age. And we, we go on that definition. So uh, one of our novels has uh, one of the Sparks wearing a pair mm -hmm. of goggles. And that actually, when the idea came up, I was like, no, no, please, no goggles. I just, it's so overdone. But uh, Golden Druid did such a good job on the artwork that, uh, yeah, I'm very happy with the goggles. <laughs> so, so let's talk about this. You, you not only have you created this world, um, but you have novels and artwork to go along with that. Um, how how those came about? And uh, I know was it Chaya or Chaya uh, Chandra wrote the novels. Um, right. And then he said, uh, "Was it Golden Wolf? Golden, Golden Druid, Druid? Excuse me. That's your professional name. Okay, Golden Druid um, did the artwork. Um, how did you go ahead and find these people that will share your vision and and create these novels for you? And did you have what, what sort of influence did you have on, on the, the plot of the novel? Um, well, that's yeah. a lot of questions. As far as the art goes, uh, we have a little bit of a company curse on art. And that is, I can't commission maps. I've commissioned over 20 artists to do maps for me, and I've got nothing to show oh, wow. for it. Um, I won't name any of the artists because a lot of them, it was just life came up and they weren't able to, they weren't able to complete it but it, it's become a company curse and a little bit of a joke. So a, lo a lot of times with the novels, people go, but what about a map? 
Uh, well, we're going to go with Terry Pratchett's You Can't Map an Im Imagination. <laughs> so uh, when the truth is, uh, I'm just cursed with that. Um, the, the cover of the first book actually wasn't done by Golden Druid. It's a large tank. Um, and that was done by Ben Wooten. He does a lot of artwork for Wizards of the Coast and Paizo. And I met him at a convention, uh, one of the Paizo cons, and we got to talking. He goes, you know, hey, I, I don't have any steampunk in my portfolio. And I looked at him and I said, I don't have enough money in my bank account. <laughs> and he gave me his card and said, hey, contact me when this is over and we'll work something out. And, and he did. Uh, so I like to tell people when they see that first book, hey, this is the guy who designed the Balrog for the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings nice. movies. And unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, what happened with that was it set a really high bar on the cover for the novels. And when I went to find somebody else to do it, I just couldn't find somebody I could afford. Uh, and finally, I contacted Golden Druid. She'd done some art that I thought would be appropriate to the books. And I told her, I said, look, I'm not I'm not at all dissing how much you charge you definitely charge what you're worth. However, I can't quite afford that. Can you recommend an artist that is in this price range that'll meet this standard? And it was funny because she came back and she goes, wow, you got a really good deal on that cover. Nobody's, nobody's gonna be able to match that, but I'll give you a quote. And so she did, we worked it out and she's pretty much been her cover artist since then. So she plays a pretty vital role on how things how things develop. And in some cases, Chai has even rewritten the story slightly to match the cover. I do have a rule that says if it's on the cover, it has to be in the book. <laughs> uh, Fawcent is kind of an exception to that. Uh, funny story on Fawcent. We, I, I sent Golden Druid a complete list of all the scenes that I thought would make a good cover. And she came back and she goes, you know, I'm just not feeling it with any of these. And one thing I've learned is trust the artist. Don't force the, don't force the artwork. Uh, so I limit it to, it needs to be in the book. She goes, is there, is there any scenes you've forgotten? Is there any scenes you left out? Maybe we can do something with them. And I told her, I said, well, there's one scene that happens off camera and it definitely happens, but you're, the reader's not there for it. And that's the scene that ended up on the cover. So that's like the exception to my rule is it's it's sort of in the book, but not quite. Uh, but she's done she's done a great job and a lot of her a lot of her sales, I'm sure, come from those awesome covers. She um yeah, she, we actually just commissioned her again to do the artwork for the cover of a short story anthology that's coming out. And I'm pretty excited about that because I, I got looking at the scenes I sent her. I was like, wow, these are pretty dull. <laughs> <laughs> There's not, a, it's a lot of it's background stories and they're interesting, but they're not, they're not your typical uh, role-playing game world fantasy. So there's not a lot of excitement to them. And she came back and we'll, we'll have a really nice cover for that. I'm sure she's just, she does excellent work. Uh, as far as the authors, 
one thing I noticed uh, through Paizo in particular was that a lot of their stuff, they had two separate markets that they were built on. And one of them was their novels. So a lot of people that didn't play role-playing games would read their novels. A lot of people that played the role-playing games would read the novels. And of course, some people that play the role-playing games would ignore the novels altogether. I thought, well, maybe, maybe this is something, especially since we've got the term spark on our side, maybe we could do something. And I was playing World of Warcraft and I mentioned in Guild Chat, we were just talking about real life stuff and it came up and I said, Hey, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for a, uh, I am looking for an author. We, we want to come out, start coming out with some novels. And this little timid voice goes, I write. And everybody's like, who the heck just said that? <laughs> because we'd never heard the voice in chat uh, before. And that was Chaya. Um, so I, I said, hey, here's my email. And uh, send, send me some of, your, some of your works. You can go to sajanitales.com. S-A-J-A-N-I-T-A-I-L-S.com. It's tales like a fo- uh, wolf mm-hmm. tales. Uh, and you can, if you look up there, you can find the, the story she submitted. It's out there with a few changes and a little bit of polish. And I read through it and I was like, hey, yeah, I, I can work with this. I can do this. And that's that's how we got our author. We do have another author coming out soon. I'm kind of excited about it. Uh, the Wolves of Steadwick will be our actually our second mystery novel, uh, provided Chaya finishes Benales' Gambit in time. So I'm I'm excited about that. It'll definitely be our first gothic horror nice. novel. I'm excited about a steampunk gothic horror. Horror that just, that just sounds great to me. <laughs> It does. Do these authors pitch you ideas or do you come to them like, this is what I kind of want? Um, with Chaya for the first book, uh, we, well, ba- basically I, I gave her a summary. I said, okay, well, uh, the, the world guide talks about this pirate queen, Sajani, and she's a Vicotti, which is a wolf, one of the wolf race. And she becomes a pirate. I know this much. And she has a ship. I don't know what it looks like, but she's got one. And she has a crew. Yeah, she's got a crew. <laughs> and I was like, this isn't a lot of information. I was like, no, you just kind of run with it. And uh, what's funny is when that first novel came back, I read through, I read through the first draft and uh, it didn't have a plot. Oh, really? That's kind of important. <laughs> And I'm thinking, I got a contract on this book. I can't just, I can't just back out of it. And uh, so I very carefully went to Taya. Like, I don't mean to be hypercritical or anything, but we are going to need a plot <laughs> in this. And so if you read the book, it's kind of fun. And it comes, it, it's really fast. And it comes to a rather quick end, which actually fits the story really well. But if you know that, what was happening was we had a book with no plot. Then the sudden ending at the end is like, Oh, okay. That also makes sense. <laughs> well, this, the secret's out now. <laughs> they didn't have a plot in the first. So anybody that reads it, they know they can have an idea of what's going on. It's right. And I, I try not to, uh, 
I look at it more as a funny story than a criticism of the author. I know exactly what happened on it. And in some ways it was my fault for being so to put, to put some restrictions on the story and yet at the same time be so open about it. I think that's, I think that's what resulted in, in what happened. She got carried away with a minor subplot. And then when that was done, she's like, okay, it's done. And it's like, nope, nope, that was your. <laughs> so most of the time with the books, I leave it open. Fawcett was fairly open. Uh, the prequel trilogy that's coming out right now is Sajani's backstory for when she was a teenager. And that one is a. Uh, basically, I told her there's these two events that happen. She's going to a girl's school in another country and she runs away. She ends up on a ship and uh, I don't want to do a spoiler, but a certain event on the ship takes place. So those two, um, th that was all I gave her. Uh, it was supposed to be one book and she got carried away with that one too. And it's now a trilogy. So I, I try to stay out of the author's hair as much as mm -hmm. possible on it. So mostly what I do is I check for I check for continuity with what we have in the world guide and make sure that uh, the content is family friendly. Um, we do we do try to keep it PG 13. So there is some stuff in there that one of the things Chai does really well. Uh, there's a scene in what once was Eden where somebody gets their throat ripped out. And when I first was told in the summary that this was going to happen, I was like, Oh, that's not gonna, no, no, trust me on this. Mm -hmm. I got this. And it came, it came through. And if you're a 10 year old reading it, you, you don't even know what happened. Oh, really? If you're an adult reading it, you go, wow, that person just got their throat ripped out. Uh, so it's subtle. <laughs> yeah. It's subtle. It scales a lot of the, what violence is in there scales to what, you know, there's even a rape scene in, in Fawcett, but I've read it to my 10-year-olds without a problem. And a 10-year-old's going to go, this person's getting robbed. An adult's going to go, wow, that's that's bad. So it it scales with what you, what you know, rather than just going into all the details mm -hmm. on it. And that works for us. I think that's an important quality. I wish more books would do that, to be honest. A lot of times it's like, you know... I was in the military for 10 plus years. I'm not a prude, but wow, I could have gone the rest of my life and not known what you just right. told me. Uh, <laughs> so we try to avoid things like that. I, I, other than that though, like I was saying, I, I, I give the authors as much leeway as I can. Fawcett was in complete, completely Chaya. I didn't do anything on that. Uh, and the same goes for uh, the wolves of Stedwick that's coming out. I, I try not to touch it if I can help it. So the world guide, uh, that was written, uh, from what I can see about a decade ago and you did a Kickstarter for it. Um, mm -hmm. what were some of the challenges when you were writing that and creating that? Oh my, <laughs> that's still actually a little bit of a sad controversy. Uh, I, let me start by apologizing to my backers. Uh, when I came out with the, uh, I have problems with PTSD from serving in Iraq. And one of the pot, the Kickstarter has you list possible setbacks that could come up. 
And one of those was the PTSD. And partway through that project, it just flared up. And I was not able to do a whole lot, but I had planned for that. And so my son and my daughter, my oldest son and my daughter were also working on it. My daughter was doing the, the, the uh, basically the world history and my oldest son was doing the game design. And so when I fell, when I fell back on them, they took over and produced the, the game. The reason I apologize to the backers is I feel bad. I have a lot of industry experience in publishing. Uh, I started in high school working for the school newspaper and got involved with more than just writing the articles. Some of the, I did work with some of the press work and layout. And this was back when cut and paste was with an exacto knife and rubber cement. And learn things from, from that perspective. I've worked on several different off, types of off, offset presses. So I know the concept that goes into that. I understand that pre-press and probably, <laughs> I tend to be a little bit of a publishing snob in some ways. I'll, I'll look at some other people's stuff and I'll go, wow, where did you learn layout? Google Docs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I have I have a, a huge background with that. And so I my son and my daughter did the absolute best they could. And I'm I'm not dissing what they say at all, but I I I'll always be a little saddened by the fact that it could it could have gone a little further. It could have done a little a little better. Uh, along those lines, one thing we are doing with Tara is I came across a little bit of a limitation on using the Pathfinder rules. We were working on getting it converted over for fifth edition, and there were just some major issues on being able to do that. And that got me thinking and realizing that the same, a lot of the same issues were with the Pathfinder. And basically what it comes down to is this. Pathfinder and, and fifth edition are both designed for a very fantasy heavy world. And it kind of, it kind of overshadows, well, not even kind of, it definitely overshadows the, uh, definitely overshadows the steampunk science element that we mm -hmm. wanted. And so I looked at a few other systems and what we decided to do is to create our own system from the ground up. And it's still the 20 base. So people that are familiar with Pathfinder and 5e will, will have a uh, bit of an advantage on learning it. We do, we, we took out some things, uh, added some others. I'm particularly proud of um, our subclass system that we have. Uh, the way that works is instead of multi-classing at third level, you pick a second class. You can pick the same class as what you have, but you pick this other class and then there's subclass abilities that go along with that. And so for instance, like for Paladin, let's say there's a kind of a uh, more traditional healing type Paladin. There's also a bit of a gunslinger range weapon type Paladin. And then the subclass that we're still working on now is the uh, Holy Biker. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a uh, motorcycle gang inspired paladin. So 
if you take if you take all three of those, you're going to end up with the most thorough kick butt type of paladin. But if you don't, if you say mix that with spark or something else, you're not going to be any less powerful for it. So it worked out really well for allowing people a lot more variety in their class builds without adding a lot of choice paralysis for feats because we basically have removed feats. Uh, that's another story. I'm pretty proud of that one too. Uh, if a person goes in there feeling like they need them, well, then their, their DM can throw it in, but uh, you, you shouldn't end up feeling like you need it. There's a lot of choice, but we've limited the choice on the, on the certain classes. And like I mentioned with the Paladin, there's the two different types. So each class usually has two different archetypes. You can you can just pick straight down one type archetype or straight down the other, or you can mix and match as you want. But the idea there was again, let's eliminate some of that choice paralysis on it. So the new system I'm I'm pretty proud of, and I hope to have it out pretty soon. Uh, just need to a bit more play testing on well, it. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, how do you maintain that balance? Because you know some classes could be heavily stronger than others uh and and you don't want that in a role-playing game you want every class to be you know have different abilities but be kind of equal so you can have a cohesive team like what kind of play tests have you been able to do with that one of the one of the things that we concentrate on in the class development is roles so one class might do more damage in combat for instance the the charlatan the con artist kind of weak actually in combat not useless you're still going to find a use for them but what they're doing in combat rather than doing the damage is they're enhancing the damage of the other classes so their enhancement is going to be added to the damage that they would do when we look at okay how effective are they in combat and that 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 kind of balances out we also balance out a little bit with the healing if a class has healing we'll take a little bit back on the on the damage we do have a uh, set progression for damage as far as spells and other abilities go so that that kind of keeps us in line but at the same time we're we're not held 100 percent to it we'll adjust it based on like for instance if something just does massive amounts of damage and doesn't do anything else then it's going to hit the max that will allow for that level if it has other effects we'll take a little bit off on that to kind of balance mm -hmm. it out uh, class balance is really important to me I'm not going to name any particular additions because I feel we're strong enough. I don't have to criticize other systems, but I will say that there are some systems out there that could have definitely benefited from more play testing and uh, more concentration on class balance. Uh, just as, especially when you do store groups, like I do, I, I DM at the local uh, game store and whew, wow, you, you want to play test with those people. Right. Those are the people you want to play test with because if the rules are possible to break or bend, those are the people that do it. <laughs> so it's been really helpful doing the play test over there. And I, I do think that other other systems could have benefited from it. Not saying those systems are bad, just that I think they could have benefited from 
doing more more of that and less of the the homebrew where people do try to balance it out a little more usually right and you are you know you're doing your own um game design system in this in this world of terra so you're in charge of everything so you know you have to to find a, a publisher to publish your books you have to do the marketing you have to do everything how how have you been able to find um a publisher that meets the needs that you need well actually we are the publisher okay um i i do the i do the publishing so i i locate the printer do the printer adjust the costs and do the approval uh, there is a minor change that just happened uh up until just a couple of weeks ago actually i was the publisher my wife stepped in and she'll be now acting as publisher. She'll be the one more deciding what gets published. And I'll be the operations manager, which is pretty much what I was mostly doing anyway, deciding, you know, this is this is where it's going to be printed. This is the format that we're going to use. Just a lot of the technical side of the of the publishing. For those that are looking to publish their own stuff, um, the the game world's kind of harsh and pretty much from what I've seen. You're going to have to try to find your own uh, find your own way on that. Um, if there's people that listen to your podcast and they they want to contact me about that, I'm happy to give advice and direction on it. Uh, but as far as finding somebody to publish again, I'm the worst person probably to ask that because I've never bothered. Well, the thing is, if most uh, people are, are indie publishers, they're going to be like you, where you know they create their own publishing company, but they still have to find you know, a printer, a printing press or, or somebody that can do it with a reasonable cost. Um, because I mean, if I was doing it, you know, I got limited funds, so I have to be able to, to do that in, in my price range without going bankrupt. Do you know what I mean? A lightning source is a good, is a good printer. They, they come out fairly on the low end. They're the ones that are that are from used by Amazon and bo both Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Although they both call them something different, <laughs> but it, it is it is Lightning Source. It's also used by DMs Guild, so they're the they're the big one for mm -hmm. that, and they do a good job of making sure that you've got things in the, in a format that can be approved for printing. Uh, my advantage is it's usually approved on the first first try for me because I, I speak the lingo, uh, but they'll work with you on getting that done. One thing we are transitioning to right now is we're look, uh, uh, going to uh, POD and in as part of that process, well, we're already POD through Lightning Source, but we're looking at doing it ourselves. I know how to bind if I have the machinery to do it. I know how to, to, to do the cut, how the cuts work and all that stuff. So, uh, we have we now have our own cutter. We have a printer that can handle up to 13 by 19 sheets, and that'll allow us to do a lot more uh, as far as that goes, and about half yeah. our cost. That's that's a big deal right there. Is if you're able to do it yourselves, you're able to save on the cost of of production. We will be we once we get up and going and know that we can do it. I do want to help other small publishers with that, but for right now, um, we're we're still fighting some of the equipment. Um, I couldn't get the big expensive stuff I learned on, so there's a little bit of a learning curve on the cheaper stuff. Uh, it's just as effective, but it doesn't do as much work mm -hmm. for you. So 
for instance, the scoring machine we've got right now. Uh, for some reason, it goes, it does the scoring is putting the little indentation on the paper if you're going to do a fold. And I go to put that through and it goes, it goes like, say, 10 inches of the 11 inches through there. And then skews to the right or the left, it, it's random on which way it goes. I'm still wow. working on that. Once we get the equipment down, though, yeah, I, 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 I've already uh, talked a bit to uh, a comic banker about picking up her stuff once we have it down. So hopefully that'll that'll mitigate some of our costs as well if we can also use the equipment to to help other people out. Um, let's see, I I will be able to beat Lightning Source slightly to start with, but not for long. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. say that as as we get bigger and have higher demand, I, I'll need more people, and once that happens, it'll right. be hard. But to start with, I, I, I do want to try to help other people. That's awesome, uh, being able to, to help other people and being able to want to as well. Um, another thing is you have to market your your you know your projects. How have you been able to, to keep up with that and, and do that? Uh, that's a huge learning curve for me. I, I have a degree in, in business management and marketing. And let me tell you, I, got, I earned that. I, I graduated in 1992. And um, I might as well have gotten a liberal arts degree in basket weaving. Uh, as far as the business management side goes, nothing of that has changed. Uh, how it works is a little bit different, but the numbers are still the same. An income statement is still an income statement. A balance sheet is still a balance sheet. But as far as marketing goes, it's not even remotely the same. When I was studying it, billboards were considered really highly effective in some markets. And now they're not so much. The big thing is social media. And I, that's the learning curve for me. There's, I've learned a lot of important, valuable lessons on that. One of the big ones that is just now, just now dawning on me, because <laughs> I'm slow with stuff like that, is interact with your audience. The Terra Project on Facebook at one point had over uh, 2,500 followers. Uh, it's slowly gone down, but those followers are pretty much mm. dead. I, I wasn't doing anything with them. I was just coming out with constant content. And after a while of you know not really seeing anything on that, I'd advertise on Facebook, and that was pointless. Um, and... Yeah, so eventually we stopped our social media stuff while we reevaluated, and that's actually where we're at right now is reevaluating where we want to go forward with the social media. Well, I think that's a key for anybody. Um, if things aren't working, to step back and reevaluate to see where you can pivot into, uh, and not just keep bull rushing forward without any success. So that's I think that's a good tip or trick that you just gave there. Uh, it, it applies to game design, too. Um, I had this great idea for initiative, and I still love it. It's great, but I can't get it to work. And, well, I got it to work, actually. And we play tested. I was like, this really sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, being, able, being able to step back and go, that, that doesn't do what, I, what I'd hoped it did. And rather than bullying ahead and going, no, I can get this to work, I can get this to work. Um, just go, just be able to go, hey, 
it, it didn't it didn't really work. Let's back off from this and and go a different direction. So uh, if I could have gotten it to work, it would have completely changed how the math worked in game mechanics for combat. Uh, basically, it was a segment based initiative system. So you rolled for your initiative and then different actions took different amounts of mm. time. So if you were using a dagger, you'd get more turns than if you were using a two-handed right. sword. But you can, as you can imagine, that's really hard to keep track mm -hmm. of. And so the first time we did it, the test came back, we're really positive. And my son went to the DM afterwards and he goes, now, hold on a second. He says, there's just one thing I need to know. How were you tracking this? And guy called up the spreadsheet and was showing us how he was tracking on the spreadsheet. And my son did a text to me and goes, that's, that's not going to work. We can't, we can't uh, count on people being able to do that much. And yeah, he was, I was thinking the same thing. Uh, and so we, we wrote a, had a program written for it. Actually, you can, you can see it. Um, think it's well um let's see while you're looking that up um you gave another key tip or trick that i think for anybody that's creative that wants to be an author an artist game designer anything like separating your work from yourself and being able to look at it um subjectively and and not have your emotions to it yeah, that that is a that is a big deal. And the the subclass thing uh, is another one that I was really excited about. And I'm I we got to the play testing. I was like, good, I can still be excited <laughs> about this because this is working the way I right. thought it would work. Uh, archetypes is working the way I thought it would work. When you've one of the drawbacks for me is because I have games so long, it's really easy for me to try to say, well, yeah, that'll work. And I have to temper myself on that and go, no, it might not work. You need to make sure that uh, it's tested. And the initiative system is, is my big example for other game designers. You know, be willing to go, hey, that, that right. didn't work. Be willing to say, hey, that class just totally kicked butt and it shouldn't have. Not not that bad. It shouldn't you shouldn't take out a legendary creature in uh, one hit. Uh, obviously, I did something. Either I need to adjust the legendary creature, or I need to adjust the uh, combat damage. But something somewhere there needs to be adjusted a little bit. Um, not that the, the luck shouldn't allow something like that to happen, but if it's built into the class to happen, uh, good example of that uh, fifth five e game. Uh, the poor DM has only been playing for two or three years. The average, well, the combined number of years playing for the players is well over 150. And that's intimidating. Right. So um, he's constantly trying to throw stuff at us that is a challenge to us. And he threw out this big legendary, it, it was for a side quest. But he's like, you guys are killing everything so quick and less than a round. Oh, on wow. One. But that, that was all in the roles and the, and that's the sort of, you want that to be able to happen 
it's important that things like that be able to happen because that's the stories that gamers tell to each other. We'll go, oh yeah, they threw this uh, ancient hag at us and the grave cleric did this and the paladin did this and pow, then the bard shot one arrow and it was dead. <laughs> which is about what happens. No, and that that does happen in games. I was playing a um a game with, you know, some family members and it was set up to where you're going in this room and you know, you had the big bad guy there and he was on this bridge and underneath him was a circle of 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 liquefied gold basically that was pouring out of this dragon's mouth and it was going around and he was going to sacrifice somebody and my um it was a rogue and it was a critical success in his thing. So he snuck up and just basically just pile drive that um, that bad guy into the the golden molten golden lava basically and just killed him. You know that's not shouldn't happen, but like that's you know he, he, stuff like that happens and that's what they remember. That was like remember when we did that, and that's what's great about oh yeah, and that's that's where the story yeah, and that's what that and the other thing, the other thing is kind of a, I found a little annoying. And again, I'm not going to name any particular systems, but they're making death harder and harder right. and harder. I feel like they don't necessarily want to do that because a lot of the cool stories are, yeah, the, the dragon still had 20 hit points left and I was down to one and three quarters of the party is down. And all I had was a single blowgun dart and Patui, I hit, got a critical hit on it. The poison kicked in, it failed its save, it's magic and pow, it was dead. Um, that's the kind of stories that, you know, if there, if there isn't that risk to the character, then you're miss you're missing out on a lot. I know some DMs are oh I'd never kill an awful player. <laughs> um, I don't I don't try. I see myself as being um, really on the rooting for the party. I want the party to win. I'm telling you her heroic story here. Heroic stories don't end with a, a total right. party kill. But at the same time, if I'm always pulling that punch, the, the players are just going, yeah yeah he won't kill us. And there's no, there's no risk and there's no, there's no reward on it as far as, you know, you get that real uh, story worthy event happening. Uh, I remember one, one campaign uh, was first edition back when saving throws became useless after about level 10 because anybody could, anybody, those saving throws were so low at the higher levels that anybody could make mm. the save. And we came across a demon lord after another fight without resting. And we were low on healing spells and we were looking for a place to rest and came across a demon lord and we're thinking, okay, we're crap. We're dead. This DM doesn't pull punches. He'll, he'll just kill us off. And the druid decides, well, you know what? I've got finger of death as a druid. I'm going to just use that. It's a, it's a save or die spell. And he'd used it on almost every fight we'd had in that campaign. Uh, actually, the whole time we've been playing together. Uh, it's my brother-in-law. He's one of the uh, he's one of the few people that's actually game longer than I have by about two years. Uh, he started with Chainmail. Oh, wow. uh, <laughs> but uh, He'd been trying it in tons of fights. And like I said, the, the the saving system on that was very broken. And so, and Demon Lords also have magic resistance to top off the saving throw. And so he's like, I'm going to do it because I always do it. And he cast it and the Demon Lord missed his save 
and missed his magic resistance and pow fight was over um it would have been cool either way but knowing that we were going to die <laughs> knowing we we're going to die and then having that work was just you want to build one of the things with game design is you definitely want to build that stuff mm -hmm. in there you don't want to leave it out you want to have that burst damage you don't want to have it all even out but at the same time you want to be doing the math and going okay how am i going to make it so that it's still challenging to the players but they're not just going to keel over well, any good story has tension, and that's kind of what you need to be built in as a game designer is that tension, that that risk-reward um, type tension that, you know, so, so it makes people want to come back and play for more. Yeah, I think some people take it to extremes. Uh, there is built into the new Terra system, there is a, a system that makes it so that you cannot always res resurrect somebody uh there were two two reasons i went with that one was i'll admit purely religious i didn't want to cheapen resurrection <laughs> uh, i wanted it to be something still kind of neat at the same time you have to have that in because it compensates for those times when the dice just absolutely didn't work and you're acknowledging the the players investment in their character emotional investment in their character so you you kind of want to balance that but we did add a rule that uh this the the world has a reincarnation built oh, nice. into it and so the rule is that the optional rule is that as time goes on the person that is more more and more likely their soul is more likely to gone on to its next incarnation and so you won't be able to res it after that mm. point. But we kept that as an optional rule for those groups that just want to be able to. I uh, can't remember his name all of a sudden. He was one of the uh, Mints. I can't remember his first name. He was one of the early uh, designers for for D and D, and he basically talks about the the when they were designing the original game, it was like, oh yeah, these guys are just going to die all the time. That's the point. Um, look at it from the perspective they were coming from a, a tabletop war game to a tabletop role-playing game. So in a tabletop war game, yeah, little figures are getting kicked off left and right on there. And so the original concept was, well, if your character dies, just erase the name, put a new name, and have the guy's cousin show up. Uh, and so that was the philosophy there and things have moved on since then. <laughs> they have. Well, whenever you talk to somebody like, like you did earlier, like um, about campaigns and, and things that you've done, it's always like, we did this. We, you know, I, I did this and like, like it, it becomes a part of you. It doesn't just, it's not something outside of you for whatever, like it lives inside of you in some way. Yeah. Um, although that does bring up one of my pet peeves in gaming. The DM did not kill you. The DM killed your right. character, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I, I get that it, it's it's you did this, and it, I, I totally get that. But when we get to that one little point, let's just, for the, for the sake of less media attention for crazy gamer <laughs> things, speak the language that they're going to understand. Right. No, I, I get that, too. And... In defense of uh, DMs and GMs and and whatever game master you title you want to do, um, the the characters that you run, 
and that I run as a GM, their goal is to kill the party. They're not supposed, you know, and, and you don't have oh, to yeah. make it easy, but you don't have to make it difficult either. Like, you know, if, if you run a balanced campaign, there should be, well, like I said earlier, that, that tension reward where there should be some risk involved. Yeah. I, uh, I like to tell my store groups a story to kind of clue them in on my DMing style about, uh, early on, a paladin in the group, the, the character died and he was doing something really brave. They were in the inn. They cast a fire-based spell. I had already warned them this it's made of old wood and there's a lot of flammable stuff in here. Um, uh, not worded quite like that, a little more subtly, but they knew they'd been told several times and they, they caught the inn on fire. Well, the paladin felt responsible for that. And so went in and rescued somebody, found somebody that needed rescuing and came back out. He's like, okay, I'm going to do it again. Like, okay. Well, we need to check on this. Is the roof still stable or is, are these things happen? The fire spread. It's now covering this amount of the end. Well, do I find anybody? I forget how many people he rescued, but after a while, the inn is completely engulfed in flame. He's going back in. You don't find anybody. Well, I go back in again. You don't find anybody. I go back in again. You don't find anybody. And the whole time I'm describing how things are collapsing and, and going away. And finally, I hold up one hand and I do this. Count down on my fingers. The roof collapsed. He's like, what, what happens? Well, I could do a lot of rolls, but your fifth level, it's a big roof. You were on the first floor. Um, we're just going to go with your dad. Uh, <laughs> and so um, the party was like, you know, he was pretty upset about it because, like I said, there's that emotional investment. I'm not knocking him for being upset about it. But at the same time, the party was like, you should have right. seen that coming. <laughs> and having told that story. Uh, one of the store groups went into a situation like that and well, not like that, but a situation where I described everything. Uh, the entire room was filled with molds and slimes and they were experienced players. They know that mold and slime in gaming terms does not mean <laughs> that it hasn't been cleaned in a while. <laughs> so I'm describing the different types of slimes. I'm letting them know that it's, there's monsters and puddings and all kinds of stuff in here. And th they look up and they look at the ceiling and it's completely coated with stuff. And I'm thinking, what idiot stands in a room coated with this? You move back out, you start, you, you, you do something with fire. You know, there's all kinds of stuff you could do, but you don't stand in the middle of the room. But no, they go into the middle of the room. They walk out in the middle of the room. I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to just kill them, but these things are supposed to attack. It's written into the module. These things will attack if they get to this point. And they're at that point. What do I do? I don't want a TPK. So I have this voice ring out go, leave now. And they ignored it. So I did it again. And then I held up one hand. And they'd heard this story before. And so I start counting down. I'm like, okay, they, I'm going to give them a chance. And I'm like, the ceiling, uh, the slimes and everything on the ceiling come down on you. Well, do you get a saving throw? You're about 60 feet away from the door. <laughs> and then in that case, too, the party came back later and they're like, you know, they were upset about it at first. But then one of them goes, you know what? 
looking back on it, we deserve that. <laughs> well, and it also helps them realize that their actions have consequences. And so, like, when they're, like you said, that, you know, they came back and said they deserved it. But it helps them become better role players and better um, gamers oh, yeah. uh, down the road because they can recognize signals and signs and be able to, to read those better. Yeah. One of my favorite, one of my favorite uh, gaming stories where I was DMing a um, bunch of experienced players and you get a little jaded. You're like, well, yeah, I like this character, but you know what? It is just a piece of paper. Um, and so you're willing to take a little more chances as an experienced player a lot of times, or the character has been going for so long. You're like, no, I'm not doing anything. I'm not going to risk losing this guy. I really like this guy. I've been playing this guy for years. But this was a new campaign. We were fir playing first level, and the party rounds a band. And my brother-in-law, who's game for, yes, yeah, both of us are up near fifty years gaming. <laughs> um, my brother-in-law, his monk rounds the corner and gets one-shotted. You know, first level they right. go down easy, and so the party's like, okay, this is bad, but. You know, we're getting ready to fight. He's unconscious. You know, he isn't dead. But we had a brand new player. It was first campaign, and it's his first character, and the character's only first level, and that guy just took off. He's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> no, people get emotionally invested in it, which is great. It may, you know, it, it makes it um, more personable. But at the same time, like, you know, it is just a, a character that you create, and you can... Have ups and downs and kill them oh, and, yeah. and do whatever. Well, we we did okay in the fight. It was a, it was a lucky. They did okay in the fight. It was a lucky hit. Um, but I just I just liked it because it was like okay, an experienced gamer would have went its first level. Um, I think it was like three kobolds. <laughs> Wasn't anything really major. It's just that one monks don't have a lot of armor at first level. They don't have a lot of hit points, and. So it went down, and the, the other guy who had more hit points did more damage. He was a rogue. Better armor. No, nope, he was gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carl, do you have any tips or tricks for anybody that wants to become a game designer and, and, and do this um, as a career? Well, the, the big thing I have to say on it is please do the math. There's a lot of math involved with the game. And one of the things I've noticed, in particular, the one that comes up the most is understand what a bell curve is you don't need to like know all the algebra behind it and exactly how it works but do realize that if you if you just have a single die roll then it's an equal chance of an event occurring all the way across that if you have more than one die roll towards the center there's going to be a higher chance of that happening and if you, the more dice you add the higher that center peak is going to be and if you use, you can use that sometimes to your advantage. Um, but like, for instance, one thing that people will do is they're like, okay, well, I want to, I want to make it so that uh, they're going to do uh, a lot of damage on this hit. So I'm going to give them 3d6. Okay. Well, there's a little bit of a problem with that. As anybody's rolled characters can tell you, uh, you're going to get those middle ones more often than you're going to get the outlying ones. And that's fine if that's what you want. 
But you do need to understand that that's what's going to happen. That's what the characters are going to see. And so somebody with a decent bonus and using a longsword, so D8, is going to consistently do about the same amount of damage as what you're doing with the 3D6. So you just need to understand that as a, as a game designer, how these diff the different types of math work. Uh, understand that it's okay to, to have a first level uh, spell that does 20 points of damage, but first level characters are gonna be using that spell. And if you give your, your first level characters five hit points, um, they're gonna be dying fairly often. Uh, so it, that I think that's just the really big key. And it's it's the biggest mistake I see most of the time is they just don't do the the, the math. They do what they think would be fun which is, of course, part of what you want to do. But you also have to look at the math that's behind that. And that makes a huge difference in your design. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, Carl, thank you so much for getting on with me. Go ahead and tell people how they can get a hold of you, how to uh, get, um, you know, Tara, the, the World Being Guide, and then your the novels. What's, what's the best way to go about that? Um, the uh, digital version of the, of the novels is available on Amazon. Right now, the easiest way to find that is just look up Chaya Chandra, C-H-A-A-Y-A-C-H-A-N-D-R-A, uh, -A -A -A, and you'll find her there. Uh, the print version of the books are available on Barnes & Noble, as are the World Guide and the Character Reference Guide, the Pathfinder uh, books that we've done. And you can also find them at shop.realrpgames.com. Really proud of that website. Um, <laughs> Uh, let me see. Uh, or you can reach me if you have questions at Carl with a C at realrpgames.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. I learned a lot um, and I appreciate you getting on with me today. Well, thanks for having me. It's an honor. Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and share with your friends.